Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, H.W. Brands discusses his book, The First American, The Life and Times of Benjamin Franklin. H.W. Brands, author of The First American, The Life and Times of Benjamin Franklin. Tell me your favorite Benjamin Franklin story that you came out of this book with. You know, that's the first time anybody's asked me that precise question. And there are all sorts of stories. I guess the one that I like best is one that has been known for a long time. But it was Franklin's explanation to Thomas Jefferson as to why he had deferred to Jefferson in the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And as Jefferson told the story, this is a story that Franklin was relating to him, Franklin explained that once early in his life, he had learned to stay away from drafting documents that were going to be reviewed by committees, committees such as the Continental Congress. And he said that he knew of a man named John Thompson who was going to go into the hat business. And so he designed this, uh, this sign for his store. And it said, John Thompson makes and sells hats for ready money. But before he went to the expense of actually having the sign painted up, he took his design around to some friends for their thoughts. And the first one said, you know, I don't think you need the words uh, for ready money. Because around here, nobody sells on credit. So why don't you just strike those out? So he did. And he took it around to his next friend. The next friend said, you know, this business of, of makes the hats. Well, well, frankly, your customers aren't going to care who makes the hats. If the hats are good hats and they like them, they'll buy them. So he struck that out. And then he said, uh, you know, uh, you say that uh, the, the hats part here. Oh, excuse me, I forgot to tell you that there was also a picture of a hat painted on the sign. So then this business of, well, you don't even have to say sells hats here because you've got the picture of the, the hat there. It's quite clear that's the, you're in the hat business. So by the time this all got done, this elaborate sign with all the wording on it had been reduced to just John Thompson with a picture of a hat. And as Franklin explained to Jefferson, I learned from that not to draft documents that are going to be reviewed by public committees. Now, Franklin was one of four or five people on the committee that originally drafted yes. the Declaration of right. Can you point to parts of the Declaration of Independence that are his contribution? Well, in fact, um, Franklin and John Adams, who are the other principal members of the committee, decided to turn it over to Jefferson for the first draft. And Jefferson went back to his room and sat down and drafted the whole thing. And then he handed over to Franklin for suggestions. And Franklin tightened up the wording here and added a couple of words there. There's no sentence that Jefferson himself didn't originally draft. It's really a matter of changing the wording. Now, when the document was submitted to the Continental Congress, there were wholesale changes. Large paragraphs, in fact, relating to the, the slave trade, were deleted. And Jefferson was very upset. And in fact, it was Jefferson's dismay at what Jefferson himself called this mutilation of his original draft that prompted this story from Franklin that I just related. What made you want to write about Benjamin Franklin in the first place? I had previously done a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. We have that here. Okay. And, uh, and I was attracted to Roosevelt partly because I had done 
20th century and late 19th century history, but, but largely because Roosevelt was such a, a multifaceted individual. And this attracted me simply as a student of history, but also as a biographer. When you're trying to tell the story of somebody's life, it's, it's very convenient for your subject to have lots of things going at once, lots of irons in the fire. So if one part of the story begins to lag a little bit, if the narrative slows down, then you can switch gears and move on. And meanwhile, in the political realm, he was doing this, or, and then he wrote this book, or whatever it might be. So I finished the Roosevelt book, and I, it was a big book, and I decided, okay, I'll do something else for a while, but I've always been drawn to biography. It's the easiest way for me to, to tell stories, to tell, to relate history. And it turns out that almost anything I write has a large biographical element. So I was drawn back to biography. And I began casting about for another subject. But my principal requirement was that this next subject would have to be as multidimensional as Theodore Roosevelt. So I began thinking, and I began asking friends, what do you think? And almost unanimously, the name that came up, you want somebody more multidimensional even than Theodore Roosevelt? Well, obviously, Benjamin Franklin. But my first reaction was, well, somebody like Franklin, there must be dozens of biographies. You know, people must be writing these all the time. So the first thing that I did, as I usually do, was to go to a local bookstore and see what was on the shelf, see what somebody could actually buy if they want to buy a biography of Franklin. And in this rather small scale and informal survey that I did, I discovered that there are two books about Franklin's life that are reliably on bookshelves around. One is Franklin's own autobiography in one edition or another, and that's been in scores, perhaps hundreds of editions since it was first published. And the other is a biography of Benjamin Franklin by Carl Van Doren that was published in 1938. It's a wonderful book, but I figured, well, it's time for a new interpretation. Every generation has new questions that it asks of history, and even if there were no new material, no new documents, no new resources to base a life on. Simply the fact that we're that much removed from the 1930s. We tend to be more skeptical, for example, in this day and age. And a biographer has to dig a little bit deeper. Van Doren's is a wonderful book. But he says in his preface that he is setting out to complete the biography of Franklin that Franklin himself began. Franklin's autobiography stops short of the momentous events of the revolutionary era. He was going to, Franklin was going to finish his story, but he never quite got around to it. In fact, he was too busy making history to turn to writing history. So Van Doren essentially takes Franklin's approach, takes Franklin at his word, and then completes the story. And I say it's a wonderful book, and it was a good source for me. Um, but I wanted to get a little bit behind the Franklin as Franklin himself portrays it. And then the other thing is, that in those last 60 years, there's been a whole lot of work done by scholars all around the world. There's a project, for example, that is a collaboration between the American Philosophical Society here in Philadelphia and Yale University Press to gather and publish what amounts to really a definitive edition of Franklin's papers. There have been various editions of Franklin's papers starting in the early 19th century. But the, the edition that Van Doren was working with in the 1930s was published in the first decade of the 20th century. Well, since that time, scholars from all over the world, now working through and with the APS and Yale University Press, have been putting together this wonderful edition of Franklin's papers. They're up to something like volume 35. Right. Now. The first volume was published in 1959. 
And the most recent volume, and it's still an ongoing project, the most recent volume covers part of 1781. So Franklin's got nine more years to live. The, the project is hoping to finish the whole thing by 2000, 2006, the tricentennial of Franklin's birth. I don't know if they'll make it or not. This is one of those mountains that gets steeper the closer you get to the summit because there's just more and more stuff. Franklin was, certainly by the end of his life, was a very famous man. He was certainly the most famous American. It's hard to gauge these things, but he must have been one of the handful of most famous people on Earth. And as a result, everybody had stories about Franklin by then. Everybody was saving letters. Everybody was writing to Franklin. And so there's all this material that's been gathered by scholars working with this project. And by the way, the materials that haven't yet been published are in a collection in New Haven at Yale University in the library there. And so I've been able to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to use this resource to draw a fuller picture of Franklin and Franklin's times and the people that Franklin corresponded with and interacted with than was available earlier. So that's my excuse for writing this big book. Are you, um, how did you decide how long to make it? Because it's about 700 and some pages. And it was originally longer. Um, well. It seems like it could have just kept going. And well, going. that's it. I was committed from the start to writing a one-volume life, simply because, frankly, in the era that we live in, it's too much to ask people to read more than one volume. And the other thing is, I, I think of a life as a story. And you ought to be able to tell the story from beginning to end. Now. As I mentioned, the book was originally longer than that in manuscript, and the length we decided on was a result of negotiation between myself and my editor, and frankly, the accountants at my publisher, who were trying to figure out what they can sell this for, how much they're going to have to charge if it's so long. Um, Franklin lived to be 84 years old, and he was very busy, so that's why it's as long as it is. Now, it could have been, it could have been considerably longer, especially since I set out quite consciously to write a life and times. One of the things that attracted me about Franklin, beyond the events of his own personal life, was the fact that he was born in the first decade of the 18th century. He lived till the last decade of the 18th century. And that period, well, when he was, he was born in Boston, really in the shadow of the Salem witch trials. And so it was, it was a time when the echoes of almost the Middle Ages could still be heard. And people took the phenomenon of witchcraft very seriously. Franklin lived into the early modern era. He lived into, and he embodied in many respects, the enlightenment of the 18th century. And so the world of Franklin changed enormously from his birth till his death. And I really wanted to try to tell that story, but as I mentioned earlier, I, write, I tend to write history through lives. And Franklin was a perfect vehicle. It was a perfect life for telling that story. And of course, from the standpoint of American history, the big story is the American Revolution and the creation of this independent American Republic. And needless to say, Franklin was right in the thick of all of that. So I couldn't have had a better subject. There are so many aspects to his life. We could easily spend an hour on each one. One of the things I wanted to get you to talk about a little bit is some of the characters who came up during the book, some of the people in history who Franklin encountered. Uh, one is um, uh, Hume. David Hume. David Hume, mm -hmm. the right. philosopher. Right. Uh, where did their paths cross? Hume was a Scot, and Franklin first encountered him 
when he was in Britain as the agent of the Pennsylvania Assembly. Um, I, maybe I should back up a little bit and explain sort of how Franklin's career developed, because one of the things that was really interesting to me as a biographer, and it worked out very well because it makes the story move along, is how Franklin's different careers and personas followed one another. Um, he was originally an apprentice printer in Boston. He came to Philadelphia and set up a successful printing business here. He only got into politics after he retired from printing. And then he got into politics, first local politics, the politics of Philadelphia. Uh, he had, well, many of the institutions of Philadelphia were the brainchild, brain children of Benjamin Franklin. Then he got into provincial politics, and it was this that carried him to England. The provincial assembly was in a long-running dispute with the Penn family, the heirs of William Penn. Pennsylvania was one of a couple colonies among the American colonies that was a proprietary colony. Essentially, it was the feudal property of the Penn family. And as long as William Penn was still alive, it was run as a benevolent sort of dictatorship. And, and William Penn really had the interests of his colony and the people at heart. His sons weren't quite so unselfish. Thomas Penn, for example, was the who became the principal proprietor, or in essence owner, by the time Franklin went into politics, was mostly interested in Pennsylvania as a source of income. And he would make money by selling land in Pennsylvania. And anything that didn't contribute to the bottom line was something that he resisted. Now, by the 1740s and 1750s, Pennsylvania, along with the other North American colonies, were engaged in various wars, wars against France. But the wars always brought in the Indian tribes on the frontier, including in western Pennsylvania. And Franklin, by this time, was in provincial politics. And Franklin was busy organizing provincial defense, funding troops, raising militia, arming them, buying cannons and the like. And by the way, this was one of his innovations as well, to, to fund these activities through a lottery and basically sell raffle tickets, and this would raise the money. But he also thought that the Penn family ought to contribute to this. The Penns were the largest landowners in Pennsylvania, and it was their land that was being defended, so they ought to pay. But until this point, the Penns had vetoed any measure passed by the assembly that levied a tax on their property holdings. Well, Franklin took the position that this was a fundamental violation of the notion that the people in any community essentially ought to be able to govern themselves. These were ideas that came out of the English Civil War and the English Revolution. And so Franklin took it upon himself to lead the opposition to the Penn family. And as the leading opponent of the Penns, Franklin was sent over by the Pennsylvania Assembly in the late 1750s, essentially to take on the Penns, to lobby for a change in the government of Pennsylvania to make, and this is the ironic thing, to make Pennsylvania a royal colony like the other colonies. And Franklin spent the first 10 years of his time in London essentially trying to do that. Now, that plan, as I, I said, it sounds ironic because that design only ended when the American Revolution began, when nobody wanted to be a royal colony anymore. You said at the time he was very proud to be a Briton. That's one of the remarkable things, and to me, that's sort of the, the hinge of the narrative, of the character development of the book. 
Because that's absolutely right. Franklin was a brilliant success within the framework of the British Empire. He had gone to Philadelphia and made himself one of the leading citizens of Philadelphia, and then became one of the leading figures in Pennsylvania politics. Then he went to London, originally on a political mission, but by then, his reputation as a scientist, or as they called it in those days, a philosopher, basically someone who researched any aspect of the universe and the place of humans therein, um, he was, his reputation preceded him. He was a member of the Royal Society, he had, that is, the, the highest research body in England. He had received their top prize. His works were being published on the European continent. So he came over as a political agent, but also as this distinguished philosopher. And it was in London that he met with people that he had corresponded with through the American Philosophical Society. He met people like David Hume. Um, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations right. and is credited with inventing capitalism. Mm -hmm. Did they interact at all? They were aware of each other's work, certainly. And uh, Smith was probably more aware of Franklin's work than vice versa. I don't believe they met personally. You also say in the book he almost met Isaac Newton, but a friend of his was not I able to write Right. It. Isaac Newton was of a generation, well, maybe a generation and a half, ahead of Franklin. Uh, and when Franklin's first visit to London, actually, was when he was a very young man in his early 20s. And he, um, actually, I guess he wasn't even quite 20. He had arrived in Philadelphia as an apprentice printer looking for work. It was quite clear that he was very gifted. And he was, he really knew the printer's trade. And he also was an ambitious young man with a good head on his shoulders who was going places. And so the governor of Pennsylvania suggested that he establish a print shop of his own and made very strong indications that if he did so, he would received the contract to do the official printing for the province of Pennsylvania. So Franklin, oh, and the other thing is that the, the governor, Governor Denny, um, offered to provide credit to Franklin to get this print shop up and running. Franklin was thrilled, and when the governor suggested that he take the official packet boat over to England to buy the the types he would need, the other equipment, the press, and so forth, and to make connections with printers in London, Franklin jumped at the chance. He got over there only to discover that the governor's credit line was non-existent in London, and that there was no money for this, and even the recommendation of the governor wasn't worth anything at all. So he essentially was marooned in London at the time. He did what he had to, to make a living. Essentially, he took up the printer's trade in London as an apprentice, and he first he began engaging in some philosophical writing of his own at that time, which brought him to the attention, again at a very tender age, of some of the leading figures in London, one of whom knew Isaac Newton well and offered to, to introduce Franklin to Newton, but for one reason or another it fell through, and then by the next time Franklin was in London, Newton was long dead. You mentioned that he was a leader in, uh, in business and printing, and he was a leader in uh, science. And he was involved in the American Revolution. Was he considered a leader of the American Revolution? It was an odd thing about Franklin. He was in London from the late 1750s to the early 1770s. He visited, he came back to Philadelphia briefly during that time, but really was the closest thing to an expatriate. As a result, despite the fact that he was the agent, really the lobbyist, for the Pennsylvania Assembly and for the Massachusetts Assembly and the assemblies of a couple of the other colonies. He was 
viewed with some skepticism by certain radicals in America. They figured that anybody who had spent that much time outside the country probably couldn't really know the temper of the times in America. And to some extent, that, that criticism, that questioning of Franklin was correct. On the other hand, what Franklin did gain from his long time in London was a better assessment of British politics than anybody in America had. And it was that, actually, that caused him to become, well, what I see anyway, as the first person to be thinking of himself really as an American rather than as a British subject, hence the title of the book. Actually, I use the title in two regards. One is he was, without question, the preeminent American of his day. He was by far the most famous American, the most accomplished in all manner of activities. So he was the first American in that regard. But I also use it in the sense of chronology and also self-identification. Because the American colonists, up until the 1770s, all thought of themselves as Englishmen and Englishwomen. They happened to live in America, but they were all part of the British Empire. And until the early 1760s, being part of the British Empire was perfectly satisfactory to most of them. Now, Franklin went beyond being merely satisfied with the British Empire. He was an enthusiast of the British Empire. In fact, he often spoke of the glorious future of the British Empire in America. He looked at the growth of the American colonies, the growth through natural reproduction as well as immigration, and he saw that the, the population of America was doubling about every 25 years. He saw that the American colonies were increasing in territory and in strength and in all the measures of social success. And he projected this out to the future, and he thought in terms of 50 years or 100 years hence how the political gravity of the British Empire would move to the West, but still, all the colonies would still be part of the British Empire. What he had in mind was something on the order of the kind of union that Scotland at that time had with England, where, yeah, Scotland was part of the empire, but there was a very large measure of self-government. And that's what he conceived of for the American colonies. And he would have been quite happy with that, except that while he was in, in England, especially from the early 1760s to the early 1770s, he was increasingly worried and then alarmed by what he saw as the growing corruption of British politics. And he began to fear, almost regardless of events in America, he began to fear that continued attachment of the American colonies to Britain would lead to this corruption spreading to America. And in fact, he saw some of that corruption, at least he thought he did, in the actions of some of the royal officials in America, particularly the royal governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson. And it was Franklin's connection with Hutchinson that got him in particularly deep water. Franklin was handed some letters that Hutchinson had wrote from Massachusetts to the British government in London. It's still unclear at this late date who it was who leaked the letters to Franklin. Well, Franklin went on to leak the letters, to send the letters to his colleagues in Boston, because Boston at this time was particularly a hotbed of anti-British feeling. And of course, Hutchinson was the governor of Massachusetts, so these pertained especially to Boston. And Franklin's point in sending these letters to America <coughs> was to challenge the common belief of 
the radicals in Massachusetts that there was a conspiracy on the part of the entire British government against American liberties. What Franklin was trying to point out was, no, it wasn't the British government as a whole. It was really this royal governor, Thomas Hutchinson, and a few other people. But the point was that if you could somehow manage to get this governor and the other few officials removed and replaced with better people, then the possibility of a reconciliation, because the rift had already begun between the colonies and the mother country, that that rift could be healed, which was Franklin's highest goal. And it was also the reason that he was long viewed with some suspicion by the patriots, as they came to be called, in America. Because he's constantly working for reconciliation. When some of those in America would have been quite happy to prevent reconciliation, or at least to make quite clear that the American colonies were independent of Parliament. Maybe not independent of the king. There was, they were willing to see an attachment there. At what point did he see that a break was inevitable? Well, it all came to a head in a memorable session before the Privy Council. This was the governing body for the colonies. This session, as I describe in the prologue, uh, took place in a building called the Cockpit. In, in fact, London? Yes, in London. Um, this had been, um, actually in previous times, really a cockpit where the cocks were brought to fight and um, people gambled and waged and everything else. Well, it still retained the name even though the, well, in fact, it still retained the atmosphere in some respects because when Franklin was brought before the Privy Council, he himself felt that he was in a pit. He had forwarded the petition of the Massachusetts governor, which was his idea, to have Hutchinson, the royal governor of Massachusetts, removed from office. But, and, and he hoped that that would be the issue that was going to be discussed at this meeting. It was Franklin's bad luck, and it was the bad timing of, well, I guess events generally, that three days before this session, which, by the way, had been put off once, um, three days before this session was held, news of the Boston Tea Party arrived in London. Well, in American history, we speak of the Boston Tea Party. To the British, it was simply a riot. It was an outbreak of anarchy. It amounted to the theft of thousands of pounds of property. And essentially, it was a sign of incipient treason that had to be dealt with very harshly. So that complicated Franklin's situation before the Privy Council in this session in the cockpit. But what Franklin was subjected to on that morning was the bitterest kind of personal denunciation, the a reviling, a very vitriolic, slanderous attack on his person, on his reputation. And Franklin probably could have handled that. He had been attacked by people before, but what Franklin saw in the utter contempt that was leveled at him in this session was what he saw was that the British government was registering its contempt for Americans as Americans. And this kind of contempt, Franklin believed, would forever make it impossible for the Americans to be treated as equals, for them to be accorded their rights as Englishmen within the British Empire. And I don't think it goes too far to say that Franklin walked into that meeting, a Briton, an Englishman, and walked out an American, or at least with the understanding that a break was inevitable. And not only was it inevitable, it was necessary and a good thing. And Franklin, at that point, then spent a few more months, really 
at the wishes of some of those in England who still hoped to keep the empire together. But from then on, he realized he was fighting a losing battle. He went home. He arrived back in Philadelphia shortly after the outbreak of fighting in Massachusetts, uh, the Battle of Concord and Lexington, when the Continental Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. The first reaction on the part of some of the delegates at the Continental Congress was continued skepticism of Franklin, partly because he had spent so much time outside the country, partly because it was known that until, until he left England, that just a month or two before, he had been working for reconciliation. And to many people in America, that seemed a bad sign. That, that was ominous. And there was another reason. By this time, Franklin's grown son, William, was the royal governor of New Jersey. So here was somebody who spent all this time in London, Benjamin Franklin, who had a son who was the king's man in New Jersey. And a lot of people thought, I don't know if we can rely on him. In fact, there were those who thought that maybe he was sent, or at least was acting, as a spy for the British government within the Continental Congress. But very quickly, they came to realize that Franklin, in fact, at this point, was more radical than any of them. And he began pushing for independence long before the rest of the group was, came to the realization that independence was something that was bound to happen. What kind of a relationship did he have with other of the founding fathers, like George Washington? What did they think of each other? They both respected each other very greatly, and they both recognized the gifts of the other. Franklin actually was briefly a soldier. This was during the French and Indian War, and he took it upon himself to raise uh, Pennsylvania militia. Um, and it was this, by the way, that really turned him against the Pens because he, he realized that the Pens weren't doing anything for the defense of Pennsylvania when he was. But he knew that by temperament he wasn't a soldier. Uh, and frankly, when, his, when he had an opportunity to relinquish his military command, he did. This was Gnaden Hooten? Yes. Where yes. is that exactly? Well, it's in what then was the extreme western part of Pennsylvania, but is actually more, it's closer to the central, the center of the state now. But it was the frontier, and it was an area that was particularly vulnerable to Indian attack. And in fact, during part of the war, during an early part of the war, it looked as though most of Pennsylvania, right down to Philadelphia, might be lost to the British in conjunction with their Indian allies. The French. Y yes. Um, and, uh, and in fact, it was anticipated that there would be uh, an attack on Philadelphia itself. So. Franklin recognized that his gifts didn't really include commanding soldiers in battle. And when the revolution broke out, he was as happy as anyone that George Washington was the commander of the Continental Army. And he understood that Washington was the indispensable man on the battlefield and on the ground in America. But Washington understood that Franklin was the indispensable man in Europe. Franklin came back from England in 1775. He remained in, well, what quickly became the United States. Through the beginning, well, through the Declaration of Independence, in fact, he was sent on a special mission to Canada in the summer, excuse me, in the late winter of 1775-1776 to try to convince the Canadians, that colony that hadn't joined the revolution, to join. He didn't have any luck. 
Uh, but he got back. It was a very difficult trip. And by this time, he was 70 years old. So he was, and it's another thing that's very noteworthy about Franklin, he was by far the oldest of the founding fathers. In fact, some historians, including Joseph Ellis, have suggested that he really should be called the founding grandfather, and everybody else is just founding fathers. But anyway, he got back, um, and he spent the summer in Philadelphia with the Continental Congress. He was the moving force on a couple of critical committees. Um, and then at the end of the year, the Continental Congress appointed him to go to France, because everyone understood by this time that it was critical to get French support for the war effort. If the French came into the war on the side of the Americans, then the revolution would succeed. If the French didn't, the revolution would fail. It was almost as simple as that. And so they decided to send the person to Europe who had the highest reputation, who would be accorded the greatest respect, and it was obviously Franklin. So Franklin went over to France at the end of 1776, and he spent the next several months trying to negotiate a treaty, a treaty of alliance with the French government. Well, he did his best, but he didn't have much leverage until the Battle of Saratoga in the autumn of 1777 demonstrated that the Americans were serious about their fight against Britain and that they had a reasonable chance of winning. So he was the principal spokesman. He was, the, the term was minister plenipotentiary. This was the, the top diplomat from America. And it was Franklin who was primarily responsible for forging the close relationship, the close alliance between the new United States and the French government. And it was Franklin who was, this brought French ships into battle. It eventually brought French troops into battle. And through the entire period, it brought French money into battle. And Franklin carried on a regular correspondence with Washington. And Washington would write over explaining we need more money. And Franklin would say, I'm doing my best. And Franklin would go to the French foreign minister, Vergen, and plead for more money and was generally able to get more money out of the French government. So, Washington commanded the armies in the field. Franklin provided the money and the Allied support that allowed those forces to ultimately succeed. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. H.W. Brands, what does the H.W. stand for? H is for Henry, W is for William. I'm what? one of those kids who was always called by my middle name, so everybody knows me as Bill. And I have to say that it's a, sometimes a confusing thing for an author. You know, what are the initials stand for? But that's the best I could come up with. Where are you from originally? Oregon. I grew up in Oregon. and. I, my parents still live in Oregon. I have a brother in Oregon, but I have two sisters, and they've scattered, one in Vermont and one in Colorado. Where did you go to school? I did undergraduate work at Stanford, and then I got a couple of master's degrees. I moved back to Oregon after college, and I got a master's degree, one master's degree from Reed College and another from Portland State. In what? Uh, one of them was in history, actually liberal studies, to be technical, and the other one was in mathematics, of all things. Uh, and then I got a Ph.D. in history from the University of Texas in Austin. What was your thesis? I wrote a study of, well, I mentioned that I'm always drawn to biography. It was really a collective biography of the foreign policy team of the Eisenhower administration. I'm one of these historians who has this chronic uh, defect, maybe, of continually moving backward in time. As a, well, historians naturally look backwards. They look to the past to try to explain the present. And I find myself, having looked a little bit into the past, looking farther into the past. So I really started out in post-war American history, and I've wound up most recently in the 18th century. Is your next book after this uh, going back further? I don't think I can go back any farther than this. How uh, long did it take you to write this? This is a book. Well, I can't say I'd been thinking about it as a book for a real long time. But 
Like nearly everybody of my generation and previous generations, I was in high school in the 1960s. And required reading was Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. So we always knew about Franklin. And I've always been fascinated by the guy. But there was something about Franklin that, that I found a little bit off-putting. And I wasn't by myself in this at all. And I suppose the person who put it most famously was D.H. Lawrence, who in a study of American literature said about Franklin that I admire Franklin, I respect Franklin, but I don't like him. And the thing that Lawrence didn't like about Franklin was that Franklin, in a certain respect, was always telling him to be good. And you refer to him as being virtue's agent. Yeah. Well, if you read the autobiography, and if you read the other thing that is the most famous of Franklin's work, it's a, actually a small pamphlet called The Way to Wealth. And it was a compilation, a summary, of the pithiest of the sayings of Poor Richard and the ones that were most conducive to material success in the world. Those are the two things that Franklin is known by. And by the way, those are the two things that D.H. Lawrence was most complaining about. Because, in fact, Lawrence goes on to say, in this work that was written in the 1920s, that Franklin is always trying to hedge me in with these Poor Richard maxims. And, and I had a little bit of that feeling in high school, as though I was always being told to eat my peas, you know, or mind my manners, or something like that. And when you're a high school kid, that's not the sort of thing you want to hear. So anyway, but I knew about Franklin, and I knew about the, the kite business, and I knew about the Franklin stove. And in fact, I really appreciated Franklin stoves, because one of the first houses that I lived in after I got out of college needed extra heat. So I happened to find a used Franklin stove, and those things really work. Anyhow, so Franklin was in the back of my mind. And at some level, while I was working on Roosevelt, I was you know, toying with follow-on projects. But I really didn't seriously start working on Franklin until about five or six years ago. Um, and it was, I tend to work on projects simultaneously. So I was finishing up Roosevelt as I was starting to do the research on Franklin. But I really didn't go into high gear on Franklin until the Roosevelt book came out. So, it's been probably three and a half years of this was my primary focus for the last three and a half years or so. You mentioned his uh, kite thing, and you also say in the book he invented bifocals, the lightning rod, uh, the glass harmonica, and uh, we, oh, the, the aspect of positive and negative electricity. Mm -hmm. But would you explain the lightning rod thing? Because you sure. always hear the story of the kite and the key, but what did he discover? In well, that? this is the interesting thing because. As a kid, and reading about Franklin in grade school textbooks, you probably see a picture of this Franklin flying this kite in a thunderstorm. And all you can think of is, boy, how foolish. This guy's going to electrocute himself. I should add, by the way, that Franklin wasn't the first person to do this experiment. He was the first one to do it in this particular way. He designed the experiment. In fact, he wrote to the Royal Society explaining this experiment that was going to answer this fundamental question, what was the nature of lightning? And anyway, so he described the experiment and how it should be done. But he didn't get around to doing it himself, principally because he thought that he was going to need to stand in a tall building so he could get up away from everything else. And um, there was a church in Philadelphia, and I can't remember exactly which church it was, that was replacing its steeple. And the new steeple that was going to go up was going to be much taller than the old one. And so he was waiting for the new steeple to be built. And in fact, in typical Franklin fashion, he got up a collection, a subscription, 
to fund this steeple so they could get the thing built so he could get on with the experiment. But meanwhile, he had suggested this experiment in a letter to the Royal Society. And this was communicated to France and throughout the European continent. And a couple of Frenchmen who had been following Franklin's researches quite avidly decided that they would try this experiment themselves. And they did it, and it succeeded. Uh, unfortunately, another fellow, I believe it was a German, tried the experiment himself and electrocuted himself and died. So it really involved fl flying a kite mm -hmm. in a thunderstorm? Right. Well, and, and here's the deal. Franklin was what in those days was called an electrician, that is, a scientist studying the phenomenon of electricity. Very little was known about this phenomenon. It was, well, when Franklin was a boy, it was almost considered magic. It was an extrapolation of the idea that if you, on a cold winter day, if you rub your feet across a carpet and then touch something metal, you get a spark. Well, people had known about that. And researchers, and it wasn't just researchers, it was almost, well, they were almost vaudevillians if there had been vaudeville in the day. Because people used to go around the country, go around the American colonies, go around England, giving shows demonstrating what you can do with this, this electricity uh, and how you can raise people's hair and you can get these big sparks and everything else. But nobody knew quite what it was. Nobody knew its properties. Nobody knew how it originated. So Franklin became very interested. And Franklin was one of those people, whenever he found something interesting, and most things interested Franklin, whenever he found something interesting, he was usually drawn to inquire a little bit further to see what basic principles are involved here. So he purchased the apparatus necessary to generate electric currents. These were primitive batteries. They called them Leyden jars at the time. And so he began experimenting with them. And he discovered that there were different, well, as he called them, charges. There was a positive and negative charge. He was the one who came up with this terminology. Before Franklin, it was thought that there were actually different kinds of electricity. What he discovered was that these were just different aspects of this single electricity. And then a big question was, well, people had observed lightning from time immemorial. And nobody knew quite what this stuff was. Some people, well, in mythical times, they thought these were Jove's thunderbolts. And then other people thought that these were emissions somehow from the underworld. Because often associated with lightning was the smell of kind of sulfurous smell, of ozone or sulfur or the like. And so they associated that with fire and brimstone. Well, Franklin began thinking that maybe there's a connection here between these sparks in the heavens and the sparks on the ground. Now, he wasn't the first one to think that there might be a connection. But as was so often the case with Franklin, he was the first one to figure out how to test this hypothesis. And so, just as he was able to draw current off of these charged bodies that had been charged up with his batteries, and that was a, a typical thing. You would charge them up with these, what they amounted to static electricity generators. He would charge them up with that, and then he would draw them off by various means and observe the properties of the phenomenon as the current was being drawn off. And he thought, well, why don't we try this with respect to lightning? But if it had just been the lightning part of it, he probably would have killed himself. But what he surmised was that something in the atmosphere whether it was raindrops or clouds or something else, was rubbing up against, one against the other, these particles, just the way Franklin could get sparks on Earth if he rubbed uh, fur against glass or something like that. So we thought, maybe that's what's going on. And furthermore, if that's what's going on, then it 
in theory, should be possible to draw off the current from these clouds, for example, just as one draws off the current from the charged bodies on Earth. And so that was the idea. See, in fact, you often see these pictures of Franklin flying this kite and a lightning bolt hitting the kite. That's not the way that the experiment worked. At least that's the way it wasn't supposed to work. Um, what would happen is the kite would fly up there, and the kite was connected with a silk string. And Franklin understood, by the way, that wet bodies conduct electricity better than dry bodies. So, for example, one of his experiments, uh, this probably wouldn't pass muster with animal rights people today, but he used to experiment on rats, for one thing, and chickens and turkeys. And one of the things he discovered with a rat was if you shocked a rat when the rat was dry, the rat often would die because the current would go through the rat's body. If you shocked the rat when the rat was wet, the rat would survive just fine because the current would actually be drawn over the surface of the rat's body in the wet fur. So anyway, his idea was to fly this kite into a thundercloud. Now, he knew it was a thundercloud because so he heard thunder, but he didn't wait until the lightning started striking right there. As the kite went up, it would be electrified. It would be charged by the charges in the clouds. And the, the wet silk string would conduct the current down the kite string to this key that he had suspended from the bottom. And then the key would gather, would accumulate some of the charge, at which point Franklin would move his finger up next to the key. And if the key was charged, then the hairs on the back of his, his knuckle would rise up. And that's exactly what happened when Franklin did the experiment. Although, he wasn't sure it was going to work. And so he took some pains to go outside of town into a field with nobody else around except his son, William. William was his experimental assistant in this particular instance. Uh, because Franklin, well, Franklin by this time was one of the most distinguished and respected citizens in Philadelphia. And he wasn't quite sure how well it would sit with his uh, general reputation to be out there flying a kite in the middle of a rainstorm. But he went out there and he did the experiment. Sure enough, it worked just as he had. And he was absolutely thrilled. And this, this demonstrated that there was this fundamental identity between this electric phenomenon in the heavens, lightning, and the electrical phenomena that experiment has been able to generate on Earth. And this, it was for this that he won the highest prize of the Royal Society of Britain, which was the, the top research and scientific body in the British Empire. And it's what really made Franklin's name. We should not go without noting that we are sitting here at the University of Penn bookstore and Franklin was the founder of the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Franklin was a relentless self-improver, both for himself and for the community of which he was a part. Franklin, from, well, Franklin said he never could remember a time when he didn't know how to read. And he had pretty good memory, so he must have learned to read at a very early age. And everything he could get his hands on, he would read. He continued doing this during his apprenticeship in Boston when he became a printer in Philadelphia. When he got to Philadelphia, he believed, he came to the conclusion that one could continue to improve oneself, in this case him, by conducting discussions of pertinent issues with like-minded people. So he gathered around himself a group of people and they would discuss various issues. When he expanded this principle, it gave rise to the American Philosophical Society. This was a group in the American colonies that would exchange their thoughts their conjectures, their experiments on various scientific and philosophical subjects. He also realized that it would be of great benefit to the city 
of Philadelphia, to the province of Pennsylvania, to the American colonies generally, to establish an institution of higher education. In Franklin's day, those people who were educated beyond the basic school level typically had to go to England. There was the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Um, and there was Harvard in Massachusetts. By the way, Franklin didn't have much use for Harvard. Uh, and in his days as an apprentice printer in Boston, he used to poke fun at uh, the graduates of Harvard who, as he said, went to college to learn how to dance but didn't learn much more than that. And they, as he also said, uh, they emerged as great blockheads as they went into college. Anyway, he thought that Pennsylvania, as the leading colony, certainly he saw it as the leading colony of the American colonies, needed to have an institute of higher education of its own. And so this, he helped establish the academy, which evolved into the University of Pennsylvania. So Franklin's projects on this kind of topic were both for the good of the community and also for the good of Benjamin Franklin, because his interests broadened out to include the interests of the community generally. And if there was a university in Pennsylvania, then it would be possible to have larger numbers of people with whom to engage in interesting conversations. It would generally elevate the tone of life in the city and in the colony, which is exactly the sort of thing that Franklin was looking for. He met his wife, Debbie, his eventual wife, when, uh, was it on the night he moved to Philadelphia? He arrived, years old? he arrived in Philadelphia uh, in a rainstorm on a Sunday morning. And he, was, he had come from New York. He left Boston. He fled Boston, basically. He had to break his apprenticeship, which meant breaking the law. He was an outlaw when he left Boston. But he couldn't stay in Boston anymore because he was having considerable difficulty with his elder brother, the master to Franklin's apprentice. In fact, the two often came to blows. He also felt increasingly confined by the rigid Puritan orthodoxy of the, well, most characteristically associated with uh, the Mather family. And Cotton Mather was the, the leading Puritan divine in those days. And Franklin, Franklin was put off by that, that very narrow-mindedness. And so he had to leave for both of those reasons. He originally had intended to go to New York. But when he got to New York, he discovered that they didn't need any printers in New York. There was one printer in New York, and that printer didn't need an apprentice. But this particular printer said, why don't you go on to Philadelphia? There might be work there. Now, this was just a stroke of luck, a stroke of great good luck, both for Franklin and, turns out, for Philadelphia. Because a better match between an individual and this temperament and the community in which he entered and really adopted as his own, and which adopted him, is hard to imagine. Philadelphia was the most tolerant city probably in the British Empire. It was, of course, established as a haven for dissenters, for Quakers. And they were quite willing to take Franklin on his own terms. And Franklin lived in Philadelphia, thrived in Philadelphia, and remained there until he was in his 50s, then when he went to London. An aspect of Franklin's story, again, this is this handy for the biographer, is that you can almost see Franklin's personality expanding and growing. And as it does, it's almost as though Franklin is outgrowing the different stages on which he acts. So it's entirely plausible to say that Franklin outgrew Boston at the age of 17. And then he went to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was a larger stage. It was more open. It had al and it allowed Franklin's gifts to flourish further. But then it doesn't really strain the analogy too much 
to say that Franklin gradually outgrew Philadelphia. And when he received the opportunity to go to England, to go to London, which was, well, its only rival probably as a center of Western civilization was Paris. But London was the center of the British Empire. And it was where all the great minds, the great personalities of the British Empire gravitated. And Franklin found London very congenial. In fact, he almost certainly would have relocated permanently to London if he could have talked Deborah, his wife, into coming over. She said no. The excuse she gave was that she was afraid to travel on the ocean. Ocean travel in those days was even more daunting than air travel today, and there are plenty of people who don't like to fly today. How long did it take to get to England from here? Depended on the weather. If the weather was good and the winds were right, a month or five weeks. If the weather was bad and the winds were adverse, it could take two and a half, three months. And the, the voyage could be very rough. Franklin, fortunately, wasn't prone to seasickness, which was good because he was crisscrossing the ocean several times in his life. And well into his 70s, he was yes, taking the trip. Yes, yes. Uh, and so he was able to survive okay. And he didn't have any particular fear of the ocean. Actually, Franklin had a rather fatalistic view of life, basically figuring when my time's up, my time's up. Debbie, however, didn't want to come to London. She used the excuse of not wanting to sail in a ship. But I think there was something deeper involved. Debbie was, she had been a simple girl. She was quite happy with a simple life in Philadelphia. She had been and actually continued to be Franklin's partner in the printing business. And she had no desire to move away from Philadelphia. She didn't want to go to London. And although he wanted her to come, I think she understood that this may sound unkind, and I don't mean it as critical of Debbie, but in a certain sense, Franklin had outgrown Philadelphia. And he had, well, to say he had outgrown the marriage isn't quite right either, but he was obviously more comfortable in London than he was at home. She was obviously more comfortable in Philadelphia than she would have been in London. And so the two spent the last several years of their marriage apart. Did they actually get married at one point? Well, because in the beginning, they just moved in together. It was a complicated business. They had been engaged. They were engaged before Franklin went off to London the first time. And by his own admission, he was led astray by what he called the low women of London. And he broke off the engagement. Uh, he stayed about a year and a half in London, then eventually came back. And by that time, Debbie, thinking that there was no future with Ben Franklin had married another man who turned out to be a rather shady character who abandoned Debbie. Now, in those days, mere desertion wasn't grounds for divorce. So Debbie was still officially married to this guy. What complicated matters even further, this was complex enough, what complicated further was rumors that this fellow had actually been married before, which would have meant that he was a bigamist which would have rendered his marriage to Debbie invalid from the beginning. Now, if that had been true, then Debbie would have been free to marry. However, if it wasn't true, then she wasn't free to marry. And when she and Ben Franklin got back together, or at least started thinking about getting back together, if she and Franklin had been formally married, and then her previous husband showed up, they would have, he would have been, Franklin would have been guilty of adultery, and she would have been guilty of bigamy, and the two of them would have been subject to the most severe punishment. So while her first husband remained absent, and by the way, he never turned up again, 
um, Debbie and Ben Franklin decided to use the expedient that was not uncommon in those days of a common law marriage, which meant that they basically moved in together and presented themselves to the community as husband and wife. But there wasn't the formal ceremony that would have really gotten them in trouble on the off chance that the former husband had shown up. And the test of this common law marriage was whether it lasted. And if it did last and the, the union worked out, then the community accepted it as a valid marriage. Did they ever have a formal marriage? No, they never did. And for one more complication, and this is something that Debbie never quite got over, between the time that they had decided that they were going to marry and the time they actually set up as husband and wife, Franklin told Debbie some big news. Namely, honey, I've got a child on the way. And it was from another woman. And Franklin explained that he was going to take this child in. This turned out to be a son, a baby boy, uh, named William. And so Debbie found herself, at the outset of her marriage, saddled, as she certainly felt, with this stepchild that she hadn't counted on at all. Who was the mother? Nobody knows. I tried to find out, but I certainly haven't been able to find out, and no one, none of the Franklin scholars that I've consulted have been able to find out. It was probably, well, some have conjectured that it was uh, a maidservant in the Franklin household. I don't know. Uh, in fact, there were even rumors that arose later that it was a woman who was, in fact, a maid. In fact, the name Barbara was used in this context. A maid named Barbara who had continued to live in the Franklin household after the marriage of Ben and Debbie. Now, frankly, that by itself discredits it in my mind. Um, I know something of step families, and I just cannot imagine that Debbie would have stood for this woman to still be around. Anyway, her identity is lost to history. And it's, it's rather remarkable because in the ordinary course of events, it's very easy to keep track of the identity of the mother. Sometimes the father's identity is a little bit elusive. But Franklin, from the very beginning, claimed responsibility for the child, for William. How was he as a father? It depends on what period of time you want to look at. His relationship with William varied over time. Uh, he was very proud of William as a boy, although he recognized that there was this ongoing tension between William and Debbie, William's stepmother. And those two were never close at all. In fact, Debbie was delighted when William was finally, or Billy as they called him as a boy, um, was able to move out of the house. And he left first chance he, he got. In fact, he joined the British Army. Um, they had two other children. Well, actually, they, uh, Debbie and Benjamin, had two children of their own. One was a daughter, Sarah, whom they called Sally, and another was a son, Francis, whom they called Frankie. Now, Frankie died at the age of four, and this always was an arrow through his father, Franklin's heart, partly because he really wanted this son who was legitimate. Now, Franklin himself never used William's illegitimacy against him. Of course, it would have hardly been fair for him to do it since he was responsible, but, but nonetheless, what he really wanted was a son for Debbie. This was going to be the son that Debbie never had, and for four years, Frankie was their son. But Frankie died at the age of four of smallpox, 
which was especially ironic and especially painful for Franklin, for his father, because Franklin was an early advocate of inoculation for smallpox. This was at a time when it was just becoming clear that if people were inoculated, as vaccinated for smallpox, then they were likely to survive the epidemics that came through Pennsylvania and the other colonies periodically. Well, Frankie was kind of a sickly kid, and so he didn't want to vaccinate him, inoculate him, uh, when he was sick. And at this time of his business career, Franklin himself was often busy. And from one thing to another, he never got around to inoculating Frankie. And, and partly it was because these smallpox epidemics only came through about every eight or ten or sometimes as long as twenty years. And so, you know, smallpox wasn't knocking at the door, so there didn't seem to be any hurry. Well, then one summer the smallpox came through, and Frankie fell ill and died. And Franklin never forgave himself for not inoculating the boy. And he never could look at other boys. He, he kept mental track of how old Frankie would have been. And when Frankie would have been 10 years old, whenever he'd see 10-year-old boys playing, he would have this very wistful feeling. You know, and he would sigh, think of what a promising boy Frankie had been and, and what he might have become. We only have about a minute left. Sure. You spent two and a half years solid living with Benjamin Franklin. If you met him today, what would you ask him? What he thought of the way things had turned out. Franklin occasionally conjectured regarding the future. And late in his life, he said, I really, he said, I, I know I'm not going to live very much longer. And I accept that as the fate of humans. But sheer curiosity motivates me to want to come back 100 years from now or 200 years from now. Now, he was principally speaking at that point of the progress of science and technology. And he imagined that scientists and inventors would come up with great things that would really improve lives. But also, he would have wondered what had become of this republic that he and the rest of the revolutionary generation had founded. At the end of the Constitutional Convention, which was held in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, and the proceedings of which, by the way, were kept secret at the time, it was a big secret of what was going on in Independence Hall. He came out of the final session, and a matron of Philadelphia approached him and said, now tell me, what it is, what is it that you have produced through all your labors through this long, hot summer? And Franklin looked at her and said, Madam, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, I would have been intrigued to ask Franklin how well he thought we've kept this republic that they created. Unfortunately, we only have an hour, and we can barely scratch the surface of this extraordinary man. So you'll have to read the book if you want to find out the whole story. This is the cover, The First American. H.W. Brands, thank you very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.